Good morning. <laughs> good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Welcome to Breakfast on the Class. Breakfast on the Class today is dedicated in loving memory and Lilu Nishmat Jack Kadosh, loving husband, father, grandfather, friend by Aaron Kadosh. Breakfast and class is dedicated as well by Helene and Edward Frischman in celebration of the birth of their first great-grandson, Etan Moshe. By the way, the Kililili comes at no extra charge. The breakfast and class are dedicated in loving memory and Louis Nishmat, and Angela Shochet on Joe Batlulu by the Edmund J. Safra Synagogue family. We wish uh, condolences to our very, very dear Harun Shochet on the loss of his mother. Um, and uh, we, we pray for Nehama for the entire family. Breakfast in the class is also sponsored by Stephen Rapport in honor of Simon Shochet, a talented Baal Koreh, Hazana Tamir Chacham, and as well in sponsored by Stephen Rapport in honor of Eliyahu Olivi, who is a talented Hazan and Baal Koreh as well. My friends, our parasha this week um, describes different types of leaders. We first start with the story of Pinchas, who acts decisively in a difficult moment. But then we read about Moshe Rabbeinu, when he is second-guessed by the daughters of Tzilovchad. The daughters of Tzilovchad come to Moshe and they say, Listen, our father, you know, he wasn't part of the whole rebellion with Korah. You know, we also want a portion in the land of Israel. It's not fair. We have no brothers, right? Our father had no sons. So if everyone is getting the portion based on all the different fathers and the, you know, the, the husbands and the, in the uh, tribes, so our father's not going to have a, a memory. So we want to get that land. And, uh, and Moshe says, you know what, I hear what you're saying. I'm going to go speak, let me speak to Hashem and see what Hashem says. But again, you see Moshe's challenged in his leadership by these women. And instead of saying to them, how dare you? What kind of thing is this? Don't speak up, don't challenge the word of God. He says, it's a good question. Let me go find out, let me go research it, let me ask. Okay? Finally, we experience the leadership of Yahushua. Moshe Rabbeinu says to Hashem, he's expecting, he's hoping, in asking God uh, to prepare a leader for the Jewish people, he's hoping that God will say, yeah, what's your kid's name again? <laughs> Gerishom, what's his name? What's his name? Uh, uh, Elias, what's his name, right? Whatever your kid's name is, that's the guy I want to be the person that that uh, uh, that leads that leads the Jewish people. But God actually does not tell Moshe that he can have his son take over his position. Aaron, sorry, Moshe thought so because he noticed that Aaron's son became uh, the Kohen Gadol in his place, Elazar. So he thought, great, same thing will happen for me, and it didn't. Hashem said instead, no, I want you to appoint Yoshua ben Nun, Ish Asher Ruach Bo, a person that has spirit within him. Now Rashi, when he's translating the words of the Pasuk, when that God told Moshe to use Yoshua because he's a person who has spirit in him, Rashi translate those words. He says, what does it mean? That a leader needs to have spirit in him. He says, Sheyachol lahaloch keneged ruach shel kol ish vaish. That Yehoshua is capable of going with lahaloch keneged ruach to go with all of the different spirits, 
all of the different temperaments, all of the different types, all of the different styles, Yehoshua is capable of working with everybody. That's what it takes to be a leader in Am Yisrael. Now, I looked at these three paradigms of leaders. Pinchas, who when he sees an act that's the wrong thing, steps in and takes care of it. Moshe, who when there's an action that comes up and they ask him a question, Moshe says, I don't know, let's find out. Let's speak to Hashem. And Yahushua was capable of working with everybody. These three examples, these three styles, and I'm not saying that this style embodied necessarily the whole of each of those individuals. I'm not saying that Pinchas only had one mode, shish kebab. Not that Moshe only had one mode, asking Hashem, right? But that we experience, we witness three styles of leading a people. Each one of these is an incredibly important response to what leadership asks of a, of a, of a person. And let's start with the leadership mode that the parasha begins in. There are times when as a leader, a person needs to be harsh. What's required is not, I'm not sure, let me check, let me get back to you. You need a definitive answer. Someone's taking advantage of your kindness at work as the boss, and they're trying it on. If you tell them, let me get back to you if you could take off six months vacation. After sure, let me check. Oh yeah, look, I checked the bylaws say that you can't have half a year off. The asking of the question itself validates the person's willingness or lack of willingness to work. You need to say, if that's your request, please turn in your resignation. If that's how you want to work or not work, then you can't work here. That harshness sometimes is required from a leader. It's required in a marriage it's required in education. It's required in any time that someone is looking for you, looking to you as a mentor. Sometimes they need something, but he, sometimes we don't need that. The second phase, if you will, or style is when someone comes to you and Moshe Rabbeinu says, actually, I might have some feelings about what I think, but I'm not sure. God didn't tell me specifically this case. You know what? Let's go ask. Let's go find out. Let's explore. Sometimes... One of the things that people need more than anything else is just to be heard. They don't need you to agree with them. They don't need you to, to give them what they want. They just need to feel that, you know what? I brought my concerns. He listened to them. She listened to them. Now maybe they made a decision to do something else, to go another way, to not give me what I want. But you know what? They heard what I had to say. The importance, my friends, of letting people feel like you heard them is so great that I would wager and I would state, I would say, that actually feeling heard makes a person feel like they exist. Not being willing even to hear them out is something that makes a person feel like they literally don't exist. They don't matter. Their opinion doesn't matter. And Rabbi I want to give you a little exercise. You know, in the Syrian community, we're very, very quick. We're New Yorkers, like, at heart. Someone's talking to you, before they finish the sentence, you've interrupted them. Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. You know, I had that happen with the other guy. Yeah, don't even go there. You didn't even let the guy finish the sentence. When you cut somebody off, what they feel like is, this person thinks he knows everything I have to say. 
he feels like he doesn't even need to wait till I finish my sentence because there couldn't possibly be something that I could bring him that is of some value. Do you hear the psychological underpinnings of not allowing someone to be heard? That's the second element in leadership that we learn from Moshe. And the third element that we learn is Yahushua, when you can flow with people. And I want to explain what it looks like to go keneged ruach shel kol ish va'ish, to be able to bear in your temperament the temperament of people around you. You know, a lot of times, you'll meet someone, you'll think the person is rude. You'll meet someone, you think the person is impatient. But you're really not understanding the nature of that person and where they're coming from. So as an example, imagine I come to you and your job is yeah, private jets. I come, to, I come to Sammy and I say, this is a free advertising right here, okay? If you want to fly private, jet sets the way to go, all right? Sam, at SammySutton.com, okay, whatever it is, right? So imagine I go to Sammy I say, and I say to Sammy, I say, Sammy, Sammy, you're running your business wrong. This is how you need to run it. Imagine I told him, you know, you don't know how to get this. This is how you should do it. Before I finish the sentence, he wants to cut me off. Because why, why in the world would someone who doesn't know the business, why would they be able to come and tell me, especially with an arrogance, about my field? Right? Imagine someone comes to you, Joe. They're telling you about making kids' clothes. You're like, my whole life I'm doing this. Right? You think you have something to tell me? So sometimes, actually, right, if that guy cuts you off and says, I thought of that, he's not not paying attention to you. He has thought of that. What you're about to say, he thought about it, and he thought about it, and he thought about it. It's all he thinks about every day. You coming to me with that kind of attitude is actually, it's a little bit demeaning, and it makes me think that you don't respect me. You got it? So sometimes someone cuts you off, you're like, oh my gosh, he doesn't respect me. He's impatient. He's rude. No, you're rude. For not coming to the person and saying, you know, I know that this is your business. I know that this is what you do. And probably you've already heard this before. But I just thought I would bring it up. There's a very different way and feel to a statement like that. Yoshua, the ability that he had was to work with every person. Now, how do you work with someone? How do you flow with someone? And again, I, I need to throw this idea at you. Flowing with someone. Yeah? Imagine you're flowing upstream like this. They're flowing downstream. What happens? The water's just, you don't go anywhere. How do you figure out how to be in the same line as someone? Now, let me tell you, teach you something about, um, about the nature of the human body. Our bodies are so advanced. The HaKadosh Baruch Hu put so much wisdom in our bodies that we, as human beings, we do a lot of things that we don't even understand that we're doing. Can I give you an example? There's something called tonal matching. Tonal matching is not when you make the, the, uh, the window frame the same color paint as the walls. That's not tonal matching. Tonal matching means that if someone speaks very quickly, the odds are that you will speak back to them very quickly. Yeah, you can notice it in an argument. When people start fighting, so it get, gets heated. They're like, you know, I think actually you should return the object. I should return the object? Why should I return the object? You should return the object! Right? The speed just escalates. Why is that happening? It's tonal matching. If someone speaks slowly to you, the likelihood is that you're not going to speak like this. You're also going to speak slower. Even, by the way, in pitch, 
and sound, volume, we do the same thing. So if someone speaks to you very loudly, you don't respond like this. Why do we do that? Did we think that that's what we should do? No. The brain realizes that when you speak in the same way as someone, the person is more likely to be able to agree with you and communicate with you. Why? Because we're kind of speaking their language. So your brain doesn't even ask you. You don't even have to think. You do this automatically. That's the wisdom of God placing in the ability of a human being to be able to communicate. It makes it more likely that you'll be successful at communicating with one another. This idea that you have in tonal matching, you also have in people the way that they live their lives. The style, the flow, the energy. So how does a leader adapt themselves to everybody else? How does a person adapt themselves to be in flow with their coworker, with their employee, with their boss? I'm a very easygoing guy. My boss is very strict. I'm a very strong, strict, opinionated guy. My boss is very easygoing. If I bring that energy to my boss, it won't work. You come home and your wife is very stressed and you had a great day at the office. You're very relaxed. The more relaxed you are, the more angry she gets. I'm sitting here freaking out, going crazy. I'm losing my mind. What, you're on easy street? Come here. <laughs> right? This is in no way condoning violence between spouses, by the way. That was a joke, okay? Now, Rabotai, how does a person do that? And the answer is that one of the challenges that people have in uh, adopting or flowing with somebody else, being where they are, is that the reason why you are where you are is because you think that that's better, right? The reason why you are choosing your lane is because your lane to you seems better. But the challenge of being able to flow with someone else comes when they recognize that there's something beneficial about the other person's style, talent, personality, persona, which I don't have. That's not always easy to admit because you're admitting that on some level someone is better than you. But if, if anyone has a little bit of humility, you'll recognize you're probably not the best at everything all the time. <laughs> probably that's not the case, right? So if you could have a little humility and recognize that while I have some talents that they don't have, there's something beneficial that they have that I don't have. You know, I, I was having a conversation the other day with a guy. And he says to me, you know, he goes, I, I'm, in my, I'm working, you know, together. with my, And I see my, the other members of my wife's family, like, they're not hungry. They're not running after the work. They're not putting in the long hours. And I said, is it because they're, they're already wealthy? Is that the reason why? Or are they just not as hungry for it as you are? He says, no, they're not any more or less wealthy or well-to-do than we are. He says, but that family, they're just more relaxed. Like I see them come home at 5 o'clock or 4.30 and they're hanging out with their kids and they're in the pool, and I don't understand. I'm coming home 9 p.m. I'm there in the morning early, right? So I said, well, can you see the value that they're getting out of that opinion or that outlook on life, maybe that you're not getting? You're killing it in one area, but you're killing your family in another area, you know? And, and perhaps there might come a stage where you might think, you know what? I could have done not as well, but had something else. 
So the ability to say, you know what, I haven't changed my mind. I still want to work the way I work. But I also have respect for what that person does and how they, how they think and how they act. That's a, that's a game changer. Yehoshua's power was his ability to be able to see the positive, to see the advantage that each and every other person had in their stream. And that allows you to kind of flow with them, to move with them, to be with them. Why? Because you can see the value in what they have. Most often, when a person has this, you know, this uh, epiphany and they notice that someone else is home at 4.30, even if they choose to be in office at the same time, you know, the next day at lunch, they call their wife. The next afternoon, they bring something home nice for their kids for bedtime. Because they learn something from experiencing the other person's lane. Okay? That's the concept of Yoshua. Now, in order to do, in order to be a leader, in order to be a dad, you have to realize that while you are you and your wife is your wife, you might have five kids and each one of those kids might be literally in their own lane. So if you can't figure out how to be with each one of your kids where they are, you're sacrificing the greatest gift in the world, the gift that God gave you, the ability to connect with that child, to inspire to educate, to raise, to uh, uh, to elevate that kid. And our rabbis, we, they really took this idea to heart. I want to share with you one example. Um, I remember reading, actually two. I remember reading, uh, uh, a, there was an article that was written by Rav Lawrence about Rav Shach. And Rav Shach was one of the greats at the time. And a fellow came to him, a young author. He was very old. And he says, I'd like you to read my book, my sefer, um, and, uh, and give me an approbation to write in the front that it's a good book, that people should buy it, that it's beneficial. You know, all the big sefarim, they have pages in the front, from this one, from that one, you know, you know, all the great tzaddikim that are saying, you know, this is a good book. You know, they're giving their stamp of approval. The rabbi says, I'll tell you the truth. He says, I want to beg Mechila. He says, I don't know that I'll be able to write you a, a, an approbation. The, the boy says, why? He says, look, I'm very old. And I don't anymore have the, the strength to be able to go through the book properly to see if actually if everything in there is correct. So I don't like to write that it's a book that I'm signing off on if I actually haven't seen it and, you know, and read it properly. He says, but leave it here. If I have the strength, I'll do my best. The next morning... A fellow gets a phone call to come to the office. He comes to the rabbi. He says, Rabbi, good morning. The rabbi says, you know, I read the book. Unbelievable. He says, and, I, and not only is it an amazing book, he says, I'd like to pay you for it. The boy says, no, I gave it to the rabbi as a gift. Rav Shach says, no, I enjoyed it so much, I want to pay for it. He goes to the Aaron. He opens up the, the book. He takes out $100 and he gives the boy, this young Talmi Chacham, he gives him $100. The man says, Rabbi, we're selling you a 15 shekel. <laughs> you don't got to give me $100. He says, you don't think I know the price of sefari? He goes, I know the price of books. He says, I'm not giving you the price of the book. I'm giving you what the book was worth to me. He says, you don't know. I opened it up. I couldn't stop. I was reading it the whole night. It's magnificent. He says, this book doesn't belong on the bookshelf. It belongs on the table with all the gemarot, with all the holy books. People should be studying it. It's worth it. I want, I want to pay you for the book. The boy left. A while later, they came out with the second edition. 
And again, he brought it to the rabbi. And again, the rabbi said, I'm not sure if I'll be able to do it. I don't know, I'm old, I'm this, I'm that. The next morning, 7 a.m., the rabbi, the author's phone rings. Picks up the phone, it's the gabai of the rabbi. Rabbi wants to see you right away. He says, now? He says, I didn't go pray yet. He says, please, come to visit the rabbi, go pray after. It's not going to be a long meeting. Just come quickly. The guy says, but I didn't pray yet. He says, listen, dachilak. He says, the rabbi already sent me a message to get you at 4 a.m. in the morning. I didn't want to wake you up, so I waited until it was a reasonable hour to call you till 7. But the rabbi's been waiting for you since 4 a.m. Dachilak, please, don't, just go to him and then go pray. The guy says, okay, he's the figures, forget about it. He must have wrote a terrible mistake. The rabbi wants to correct already. He's been 4 in the morning. He comes running to the rabbi. He walks in out of breath. The rabbi says, thank you so much. He goes, you don't understand what a treasure this book is. He says, and I couldn't, I couldn't wait to be able to tell you how good it is, and then I'm going to write you the the uh, the uh, the uh, the letter of uh, of recommendation. And he says, and also I wanted to pay, and he pulls out another hundred dollars. The rabbi is telling the story. He says, he says it took me years to figure out that this is what the rabbi did for every author of a sefer. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to it. I don't want to make any promises. And then the next morning, the guy should feel that the rabbi stayed up all night to read his book. And not only that, he has $100 for the book. To ensure, <laughs> to ensure, right? To ensure that the people who were writing Sepharim would feel that their contributions were valued. And I want to end with this. There was once an international meeting that the rabbi called with all heads of the community, including people that came from America and from uh, overseas. The people who were running the rabbi's schedule in the house, they said, if we have all these people coming, we have to cancel all the appointments. So all these people that come to see the rabbi, not going to be time. So they canceled all the appointments for the morning. All the dignitaries, all the rabbis, everyone's waiting for him. They're ready to start the meeting. As they're ready to get, ready to get started, a father walks in for his, with his son. They say, well, he's not seeing anybody today. He has a meeting. The father says, please, I just want to get a beracha from my son that he should succeed in learning Torah. I'll go in, it'll be one minute. They say, one minute, fine, go ahead, Fadal. He goes in, they close the door, one minute, two minutes, three minutes, ten minutes, half hour. They're in there for an hour and a half. Finally, they come out. The people start yelling at this father. Chutzpah. You asked us for one minute, we're all waiting out here to start the meeting. You spend an hour and a half with the rabbi? The guy says, listen, I'll tell you what happened. He says, it was my intention to just come ask for a beracha. I walked in, I said, could the rabbi give a beracha for my son that he should study Torah? He should succeed, succeed in his learning. But the rabbi wouldn't give the beracha. The rabbi said, he's not succeeding? He turned to my son and he said, do you love learning? Do you enjoy learning Torah? And the boy said, I'll tell you the truth. I don't. He said, why not? He says, I, I just don't understand it. Rav Shach said, go get two Gemaras from the shelf. He brings down two Gemarot. What are you learning? Elu Mitziot. Rabbi opens it up. He starts talking to them about Yehushalomidat. Someone loses an object. He doesn't realize he lost it. He can't give up hope because he doesn't even know that he lost it. Now you found it. And the person still didn't give up hope. That means it's still in his possession. Are you allowed to keep it? Yes, no, back, forth. Until the boy, after an hour and a half, the boy finally gets it. Rav Shach says, do you understand? Do you get it? boy says, yes, I understand. He starts crying. Rabbi says, why are you crying? 
He said, it's the first time in my life that I ever appreciated learning a piece of Torah. He says, and I finally understand what I was missing all these years. The rabbi gives him a berachah, and then he says, and then we left. What am I supposed to do? I walked in there for a berachah, the rabbi didn't give it to him. He wouldn't give him the berachah until my son learned to love learning, and he was studying. You want me to tell him, Rabbi Shach, to stop learning with my kid? You want me to tell the rabbi how to run his business? I, I, you know, I, I'm sorry. Two minutes later, Rabbi Shach walks out, and he says to all the people there, he says, I just had an hour and a half long meeting. He says, please, I'm very exhausted and very weak. He said, let's push the meeting off until tomorrow. So now they, didn't, they gave up one minute. And now they're, they're pushing off the whole meeting till tomorrow. And he says, and I want to tell you why I took this meeting and why I knew that we had this meeting waiting. You were all out here. But I couldn't, I couldn't not accept them. I couldn't spend the, not spend the time. He says, when I see a young Jewish boy, doesn't love Torah, that's pikuach nefesh. That child is at risk. And when it's pikuach nefesh, what do you do? You throw away everything that's on the table and you deal with saving a life. I'm so sorry that it took this long, but this is what I had to do. Let's meet again tomorrow. My friends, this bothered me, this story, for a long time. I don't understand. Okay, you're sitting with this kid, you're saving his Judaism, you're connecting him to the love of Judaism, of, of Torah, of mitzvot, fantastic. But all these people waiting outside, they're waiting for issues that pertain to the Jewish community. For, uh, for uh, 20,000, 100,000, for the million people. Yes, there's the one sitting in front of you, but what about the million that they represent? You push them off. That's also pikuach nefesh. And the answer is, my friends, I think that Rav Shach was teaching them a lesson too. You know, sometimes when you think of the community, you think of the million. But you don't realize that the million is made up of one million single people. Single boys, single girls, single families. And a lot of times, leaders forget people for the community. And they forget that the community is made up of people. So before he could have a meeting with them about saving the world, he had to show them how important it was to save one Jewish child. My friends, what will save the Jewish world is by communicating to them in a way that will bring them to love Judaism. And the only way to do that is to make them feel good about what it is that they're doing and what it is that they're trying to achieve. If you yell and you scream, you're never going to get there. You know who brings the Jews to the promised land? Yehoshua, because he can be with each and every person. He can inspire and appreciate each and every person. He can elevate them, appreciate them by showing them what's special about them, to get them to that place in their life. May we all be zocher, to have the experience, to know the difference between when to be a Pinchas, when to be a Moshe, when to be a Yehoshua, and to execute beautifully so that we build the best relationships with our children, with our communities, with our students. Baruch Amen.